Now in the New Testament to the Gospel of John and chapter 6. The Gospel of John and the 6th chapter. And we're going to read from verse 35 on into a few verses. Let us first of all pray and seek the Lord's help now. Our Father, as we come now to thy word, we are mindful that this word cannot be tampered with. We are to listen soberly. Every word is truth. Every word before us, O Lord, cannot be debated. We read in Scripture that thy word is settled forever in heaven. Thou hast spoken, this is the truth. We cannot deny it. Men are liars, and we read, God cannot lie. This is thy word. Humble us by it. And perhaps if we have never understood it before, grant us an understanding mind and heart. O oh Lord, truth often is painful, but it is good. O oh Lord, we pray that thou would give us the Truth, the medicine of thy word here today. We pray, O Lord, that it might cure all spiritual maladies in us. And it might be the remedy that we need. Perhaps if we have erred in our doctrine. Lord, we pray that it will correct us, it will guide us. And it will give us that blessed hope that is in Christ alone. Help me to faithfully divide the word of truth here today. Bless us now as we come to thy word. For thy name's sake we pray. We ask in Christ's lovely and precious name. Amen. Amen. So turning now to the Gospel of John and the sixth chapter. Let me just first of all, before we come to verse 35 and read on, give you the context. The Lord Jesus Christ has just healed many people. And then he has fed thousands of people. And he has exclaimed that he is the bread of life. And many are following him, but they're following for the wrong reason. He says, ye seek me, not because you saw the sign, but because ye ate of the bread and your bellies were filled. I pray that we might come here to receive spiritual truth of God's word. This precious truth that salvation is all of God from beginning to end. In fact, This is what we learn from, right, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, man's fall, and then right to the end, we see that salvation that is wrought by God. It's a salvation that is given by God. God finds a man lost, dead in trespasses and sins, and he brings him to a knowledge of himself. And it's through the last Adam that a man is saved. Man fell in Adam. But he is saved by Jesus Christ, the last Adam, who is also and who is primarily God, the Son. God was manifest in the flesh. Now, let us read John 6, 35. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you, 
that ye also have seen me, and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, for the sake of time, we come down to verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father, which hath sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. We turn now to John 17. And this is our Lord Jesus Christ's prayer with his disciples after the Passover was celebrated and after he instituted the table, the supper. And this prayer to the Father is given in earshot of his disciples. John 17 verse 1. These words spake Jesus, and lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee, for I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Amen. We end the reading of God's precious word there. There's more to that prayer, but I want to 
Just read those words. Now this morning, dear friends, we come to consider the very last of the five doctrines of grace. Now these doctrines are, they're not man-made. They're in the Bible from cover to cover. We come to consider this last doctrine, the perseverance of the saints, or sometimes some call it the preservation of the saints. The perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. It, I suppose it's both. They are preserved. And they will persevere nonetheless. They will persevere because they are preserved. They will overcome. They will overcome all things. Why? The Lord Jesus reminds us, even in these words here, that they shall never perish. All that the Father has given him, all that the Father draws to the Son by the Spirit, shall not be cast away. He gives them eternal life. Salvation is entirely, my friends, of God. They persevere because they are preserved by God. The new birth, as we will think once again, is irreversible. It cannot be reversed. Whoever is in Christ is a new creature, we're told. All things are become new. The man is a new person. Nicodemus, you cannot enter, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven except a man is born again. He must be born again. And we read there in John 3, 3 in the margin, born from above. It's a spiritual birth. The man is radically changed. It's the work of God. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church there at Philippi. He's praying for them, but he said this, being confident of this very thing, he said, he which has begun a good work in you as a believer will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Not might perform it, but will perform it. As I said, the new birth is irreversible. A man cannot lose his salvation. It is all of God. It is all of grace. And even in the being preserved, even in the persevering, this is of God. Just look back there at that verse that we read there in John 6, 44. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And here we have a definite article, I will raise him, and I will raise him up at the last day. The man will not be lost, he cannot be lost. Look at verse 39. And this is the Father's will, which has sent me, that all that he hath given me, I should lose nothing. Thine they were. John 17 we read, didn't we? Thine they were, Father. Thou gavest them to me, but they would have to be paid for. Their sins would have to be met in his body. He would have to suffer. He would have to lay down his life. He would have to, as Peter said, bear their sins in his own body. He, the just, would have to die for them. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd layeth down his life for the sheep. Now, before we come to consider this, let's just think of that little acronym, TULIP. Total 
depravity, then unconditional election, then limited atonement, then irresistible grace, we thought last time. Those doctrines, now as I said, these are not man-made. If you study the Bible carefully, it's very clear right from the outset. The Bible teaches man's total depravity. Even in Adam, when Adam fell, immediately after he had sinned, he began to lie, didn't he? Satan tempted Adam and Eve. She began to lie. And the very first child that was born was born a murderer. Cain killed his brother. Abel was also a sinner, wasn't he? And they had to offer sacrifice for their sin. And uh, I can tell you, you know this, if you know your Bible well, there's a problem right from the beginning in the book of Genesis over worship and how to rightly approach God. That's the constant trouble. Cain, God, you'll receive me by the vegetables that I give you, what I want to give you, my good works. Cain brought the produce of the ground. But God had already told Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel how to approach God. It's very clear right there from the beginning. Remember, an animal was slain to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. And the right approach was this, that shed blood had to be given for sin. But Cain wanted to present his good works, his toiling of the ground. My friend, the Bible says none are righteous. No, not one. And we, by our good works, could never present ourselves right before God. Some people are insulted by this very idea that God could never accept them. Well, I understand God could never accept me. Because what am I? I'm a sinner. When God looks at me, he says for the whole world, the Bible says God looks down from heaven and sees that none are righteous. No, not one. No one is acceptable. No one could make himself right. In fact, the Bible tells us that the human heart is enmity with God. Romans 8 verse 7. The carnal mind is enmity with God. It's not subject to God, neither to his law, neither indeed can it be. So then, therefore, we read, that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Can't. A man must be born again. Man is totally depraved. Now, that does not mean, as we thought in the first place, that man is as wicked as he could be. But sin has permeated to every facet of man, his will, his affections. There's... The man in the world is working. As I said, the Bible constantly is teaching that man is fallen. Consider the man plowing the field. The scriptures say even the plowing of the wicked is sin. He's plowing his field. He is making a straight foray. He's providing for his family. But the wicked never thanks God for the sun and the rain and the crops and life. All of these things are a gift. He lives ignoring God. 
He lives rejecting God. That's natural man. And the Bible tells me and it tells you that the heavens and the earth every day declare the glory of God. Romans chapter 1, we are told that natural man is without excuse because the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen by the things that he has made. Man knows that there is a God, but his heart is enmity with God. What the doctrines of grace teach is reality. That God is good. He causes his sun to shine and his rain to fall on the just and the unjust every day. The doctrines of grace teach also that man by nature is enmity with God. Although God has revealed it to men that he is, and Paul tells us in Romans 1 that man is without excuse, he constantly, as Paul says, suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. He holds it down. Now again, total depravity. There's only one thing when we look at the acronym, TULIP here, total depravity, unconditional election. There's only one of these doctrines where a man is a contributor. And that's the first. He is totally depraved. Everything else in that acronym, God contributes. Unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and even perseverance of the saints, as we will see. Now, again, we come back, we're just going to, before we come to this particular doctrine this morning, we're going to just cover over what we thought in the first four messages. First of all, total depravity. As I said, that man is one in whom sin has permeated him. He is corrupt through and through. He is not as wicked as he could be. But sin has permeated, and it's only by the common operations of God that man is somewhat preserved from being as evil as he could be. Consider it, the church is called light and salt. Remember what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5, ye are the light of the world. He's talking to Christians. Ye are the salt of the earth. Think of the effect of a Christian in the world. It's a tremendous effect. A man, an office stops swearing, or should do, when a Christian walks in the room. Why? Because man has a conscience, and people stop doing things because of one man, perhaps. They know it's wrong. And a Christian acts like that salt to rotting flesh, Light in a dark world. But then there is the word. It's amazing how many Bible verses even the ungodly know. It's true, isn't it? They can quote scripture. And it has a preserving effect. But man is corrupt. We read in Job 14, 4, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Man is born unclean. He comes from sinful parents. But as I said, man is not as outwardly evil as he could be. 
We thought of a various illustrations. We thought of a, a caring nurse. Remember in the first sermon, she's caring for patients. But she's doing this because it makes her feel good. And it's a good thing to do. But she doesn't do it for God. Man is made in the image of God, isn't he? You can think of a doctor. Very well-educated man. He goes to study for many years and he becomes a surgeon. Why does he do it? Well, because it is good. But he doesn't do it for the glory of God. What is the first commandment? It is this. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, thy mind, and thy strength. He doesn't do it for the glory of God. He doesn't do it with any acknowledgement, with any thought of God. God is not in his thoughts who is giving that man life. You look at a surgeon, he's an intelligent man. He looks at a body. He can see that the body is comprised of seven major organs. The eye needs the brain to see, needs the heart, needs the lungs. The body is not some freak accident. But we are, as the scriptures say, fearfully and wonderfully made. I believe that God will. There are degrees of sin. And God has exposed so many things to so many people. You think of the farmer who sees the amazing produce that comes out of a little seed. He is guilty of receiving so much light, but never giving glory to God. The surgeon, he sees the amazing eye. He can operate on an eye and say, well, this is just simply amazing. And he himself is without excuse. He, he sees the heart. He sees the, the, the being of a person. He cannot say that this is a, a chance. This is a freak thing. But it, he is left without excuse every day. Oh, he's doing good. He's earning a lot of money. And it makes him feel good. The man might live a longer life. But he had never acknowledges God. See what I mean? Man is depraved. He's not as depraved as he could be. We also thought, didn't we, of the analogy of men, perhaps some pirates, they hijack one of his majesty's ships. And there they are, they hijack a ship. they pirates. And yet those pirates... On that ship now, there's law and order on that ship. In fact, we might even say they're good pirates. But they're still pirates, aren't they? They've still hijacked the ship. And that's it. Man even might be living an occupying place upon this earth. But he is still a rebel against the Almighty God. Man has two problems. In his depravity, he has guilt. And nothing can wash away sin. When you sin, the sin is committed. The act of treason is committed already. You can't wash it away. The man goes to prison for murder. He may come out, but he's still a murderer. You steal something, 
you're still a thief. He has guilt. But then, on the other hand, he still has a bad heart. He's still polluted. You haven't changed him. Prisons today, our local governments believe that, well, there's no such thing as punishment. Prison, they say, should be uh, to somehow make somebody better. But that's not wrong. It's never punitive in their eyes. should be punishment. Because you do the crime, you serve the time. In fact, if you kill somebody today, you're not, you may get out before 20 years. The Bible teaches very clearly, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The Bible teaches capital punishment. And sinning against an infinitely holy God, my friends, demands infinite justice. Infinite justice. If we don't understand that, we don't understand the holiness of God. And man, he's got two problems. I use the other illustration. Remember, you've got a man, he, he gets behind the wheel, but he's had one too many drinks. And he's driving down the road and he ends up in the ditch. And the police come. Somebody sees him in the ditch. The blue lights come and police come. The man's got two problems. The first problem is, he's broken the law. The other problem is, he's inebriated, he's drunk. He doesn't even know where he is. And that's what sin has done. Sin has affected our minds. The Bible speaks of the deceitfulness of sin. We like to think of ourselves not as bad, really, as the Bible makes it out that we really are. So we can use these analogies. Again, the man, as I said, he's got a legal problem. He's got to go to court. But he's also got a problem, a natural problem. And that is, he can't even think straight, the drunk. Now, that's total depravity. Then we thought, secondly, of unconditional election. All have sinned, first of all. Then there's unconditional election. The Bible, as I said before, unashamedly teaches that God chooses, or we should say chose, some to salvation from all eternity past. Because the Bible teaches us that God has planned everything. God is never caught by surprise. I'm amazed. Some people catch me by surprise. I wonder what kind of a Bible they read. Or if they've ever read the Bible at all. Everything is known by God. David says in Psalm 139, Thou knowest my thoughts afar off, even before I've thought them. Thou knowest my lying down and my rising up. There's nothing hidden from thee. He says these thoughts are too much for me. When Nathanael was under the tree, the Lord Jesus said, I knew thee before. What about prophecy? Throughout the Bible, we have prophecy, don't we? This is going to happen. That is going to happen. Why? Because God has determined it. Prophecy happens because God determines the future. Because God is sovereign. And God chooses a people not because of any foreseen condition in that person. 
It would never be grace then. It would be works. I want to show you, if you turn with me to Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 3, who hath blessed us, and it, bear in mind, look, I'm going to speak plainly here, men. Something that really grates me, and I'm sure grates some of you, is this. There are many people, when they come to the Bible, we just have your eyes, men. When they come to the Bible, they don't look at the context. Context is so important, my friend. I ask you the question, who is Paul writing to? He's writing to Christians. He's here not writing to the unbeliever. And he says this, verse 3, Blessed be the God, Ephesians, of course it's the Ephesian church, it's the church at Ephesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Now notice, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, you weren't holy, and without blame before him in love. Now notice, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. It was the good pleasure of his will. It was not because of anything he saw in you or me. No. I can take you back there. We saw it last time, or time before last, Romans 9, 11. Considering Jacob and Esau, two twins. And by the way, if you don't believe that a man is born in sin, you've got Jacob and Esau fighting in the womb of Rebekah. Fighting in the womb. Sinners in the womb. Romans 9.11 For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. Not of works, man's good works, not, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, Rebekah, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. God chose to love the one and not the other. Now, again, God's love is discriminatory. There's nothing in me, my friend, or in you that is lovely. Is there? We love people because it may be something we see in them. When God looks at his people, there's no good thing in him or her. But God chooses. You see, the love of God is very different to our love. He settles, he fixes his love. And he makes that person the object of his love. They receive his love. God's love is very different to our love. What did Paul say of himself? Did he ever say, I thank God. He chose me. He saw some good in me. 
He said, oh, wretched man that I am. Wretched man. He could say that he was the chief of sinners. Why? Because he persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. You know, we'd never choose Paul, would we? We'd condemn him forever. What about other men? Great sinners in the Bible. Amazing how God saved them. You know, it is said, said by A.W. Pink, that God gives to most men what they most richly deserve, and that is damnation. While to others he gives the holy, unmerited, unmerited gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Unconditional election. It wasn't conditioned upon the person. But it was all of God's grace. His free and sovereign grace. And then we thought of limited atonement. This is clearly taught in the Bible. In other words, Christ's substitutionary death was for his people. It was for his people. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24, who in his own self bear our sins in his body on the tree. He didn't bear the sins of the whole world but he bore the sins of his people. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd layeth down his life for the sheep. Acts 20, verse 28, it was a purchase, the church of God, says Paul to the Ephesian elders, which he purchased with his own blood. It was divine blood. God was manifest in the flesh. When we speak of limited atonement, it's not limited in its power or effect or limited in its value or virtue, but limited as to whom Christ made atonement for. You see, Christ didn't simply die to make the way of salvation possible, but he actually took the sin of his people. He said, I lay down my life for the sheep, John 10, 15. John 10, 27, he said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They will be made to hear the scriptures, the voice of God speaking by his spirit through the word. You can prove limited atonement, do you know, in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 53, you may wish to just turn there for a moment. Isaiah 53, verse 10. And we know this has to do with the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. We know that important verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. He is speaking of God's elect. Each one has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And yet, you come down to verse 10, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He shall put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin... He shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now notice verse 11 very carefully. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Do you notice there, many? Not all. Four. In other words, here's the reason. Look, he shall bear there. Iniquities. In other words, he only justifies them whose sins he bears. 
You see that? For he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, and he shall bear the sin of many. So it should be patently clear to us that it is a limited atonement. Now, you see, God would then, if Christ bore the sins of all the men in the whole world, and then sent those people to hell and judged them for their sins, God would be unjust because payment would be made twice for those sins. Would a judge require payment twice? Absolutely not. But he bore the sins of many. Hebrews 9, 27. For he is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, should be very clear to us. And then last time, and by the way, let me just interject this again. Sometimes the word all doesn't necessarily mean all. Sometimes it means all God's people. Think of John 12, 32, where the Lord Jesus said, And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Did he mean all men? No. He meant all of his. There are many that have perished, my friend, and gone to a lost eternity. There are many that will never hear the gospel. So was he, what was he saying when he said, I shall be lifted up from the earth? If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. He meant all of his people. You know, we have to use what is called the analogy of faith or the analogy of Scripture. You have to compare Scripture with Scripture. You don't take a verse and then form a doctrine. Those more obscure texts we need to interpret from the clearer passages of Scripture. I'm sure you understand what I mean. Last time we then thought of irresistible grace or effectual calling. The Lord says in Jeremiah 31 verse 33, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, think of it, therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Because his love has always been, he draws. He draws how? Well, we read it in John 6, by his Spirit. We're told, are we not? In Psalm 110, they shall be willing in the day of his power. He draws the saint to himself. He said to Nicodemus, the Lord Jesus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus said, how is it that a man, how can he enter into his mother's womb a second time? The Lord Jesus says, I'm not speaking of that. He says, I'm speaking about being born of the Spirit, verse 6 and verse 7. That which is of flesh is flesh. That which is of spirit is spirit. A man is born dead in trespasses and sins. This is why we are told in Ephesians 2, when Paul speaks to the Ephesian church, he says, and you hath he quickened. God quickened that man. God made that a man alive. He was once dead spiritually. He was never convicted of his sin. He was lost, as lost as can be. Paul was like that. That's God's mercy. And thank God he does it. Because if he didn't draw, nobody would be saved. 
I would still be lost in Romanism. I'd still be lost in the world. I'd still be thinking I was a good person. And somehow God chose me because he saw some good in me. You know what? I could never sleep at night then. Because I'd be constantly worrying. Does he still see good in me? No. The good is his mercy. To me, a sinner. Romans 9, 16 So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth. You see, a man does not will, my friend, in the right way until God changes his affection, until God changes his heart. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. When a man is born again, that's the mercy of God. He says, live! And a man lives! He was once dead to his sin. He thought he was good. But he realizes he's very bad. And that's, that's the first sign of life. When you realize how bad you really are. How rotten to the core you are, my friend. Matthew 5. Blessed are the what? The poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Until you see, Lord, there's no good in me. You're not blessed. It's God that showeth mercy. He says, and I will put a new spirit within you. Ezekiel 11 and so on. Now, let us think of this tremendous working of God here now in the final It's irresistible grace. So God brings a man to himself. We want to think here of this perseverance. And there may be some questions running in your mind. The Bible speaks of those who fall away. We'll look at that. Paul says that we are persuaded better things of you. Things which accompany salvation. In other words, they never had it to begin with. They never had salvation. Now, the first thing God does is when he saves us, he gives us a new heart. Remember, Nicodemus couldn't believe because he was not born again. The Lord Jesus said, look, if I tell you of of earthly things and you don't understand, how will you understand if I tell you of heavenly things? Nicodemus, verse 11, you've got to be born again. You're in darkness, Nicodemus although he was a teacher of the law. Now, first of all, in this tremendous work we saw last time, there's repentance. And repentance is ongoing in the Christian life. When a man is irresistibly drawn, he is made to repent. Acts 11, verse 18. And when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. In other words, a man by nature doesn't have a heart to truly repent. I mean, I have people phone up, not members of our church, lady phoned the other day, Pastor, I need your help. My marriage is broken up. 
I need God to help me. Is that woman looking for salvation? No. She just wants God to fix her life. Doesn't see that she's a sinner. She's mourning, but not over sin. She's grieving. And you give her advice, you won't take it. Not until somebody's born again. People come to God for all kinds of things, men. When God opens your eyes to yourself and to show you your helplessness, he shows you your sin and you, there is an ongoing turning. Repentance is the word metanoia, which means to turn. And there's a desire now to please God, the God who gave his son for that sinner and who wants to change. Although he sees, when he looks, read Romans 7, how Paul says, I go to do good and I find evil is present there with me. That's the spirit of a Christian. He sees, he's inward looking, and he sees he or she is wretched. Oh God help me, I hate this filthy sin, and I desire to be different. That's ongoing repentance. And the person he prays. I mean, confessing sin is all part of prayer, isn't it? And drawing near to God. And there, we read in Acts 11 how God granted repentance. You see, man wouldn't have a heart to do that. And then there is ongoing faith. Now, God, where we pick up here in this perseverance or this preservation of the saints, it really means that there is a stickability, there's a persistence Contrary to the giving up, the man doesn't give up. Why? Because God is in him. Do you remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? Glorify God in your body, for know ye not that ye are the temple of the Holy Ghost. He says, know ye not that the Spirit dwells in you. When the person is saved, the Holy Spirit comes to take permanent residence, my friends, in the soul of that man. What did Paul say to the Philippians? He that hath begun a good work and you will see it to completion. And you see, what God does is he enables his children to continue on in faith in Christ and to continue to repent. Do you remember when David was confronted with his sin and Nathan came and Nathan said, Thou art the man. He was smitten in his heart. He was grieved. And when he, he confessed his sin in Psalm 51, he said, Lord, against thee and thee alone have I sinned. That was what troubled David. It was not just being found out by men, but it grieved his heart that he had offended God. And that is the difference. Fake believers, they're never troubled, but they grieve God. They're troubled if the world finds out about their sin. Because, of course, then they've shown up to be hypocrites, aren't they? They're not real. A genuine believer is offended when he's not prayed to God today. 
when he's not read his Bible. That's a man who was born again. Paul could say, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. He was concerned about his walk and his relationship with God. Here, this perseverance of the saints. We read how none shall pluck them from his hand. Why? Because the Lord is in that person. He resides in that person. I want you to turn to Hebrews 6, verse 4. There are some that say, well, hold on. What about verses like Hebrews 6, where it looks like somebody can lose their salvation? And Paul has been warning many who profess to be the Lord, but remember what the Lord Jesus said, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. And this really is a warning to the empty, the merely empty professor, the one who has a profession of faith. And let me say this, just because you can stand up and say a few things doesn't make you a Christian. Doesn't make you a Christian. The proof is in the life. John uh, Hebrews 6 verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, that's enlightened with the truth, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Now the Holy Spirit can teach the word. But it's not necessarily and can empower a man to preach the word. You, you can watch a man preach the word of God, full of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Stephen said to the men who stoned him. You always resist the Holy Ghost. That's not the irresistible grace of God, but the Holy Spirit is speaking in the Word. And men can resist the Spirit of God that is speaking in the Word. That's true. And have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the world to come. If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. Now notice the analogy that is given. For the earth, which drinketh in the rain, that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them, by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing. So there's the analogy. You can imagine a parched ground, and rain is going to come down. It drinks the rain. Okay? That's the true herb. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected. Paul has been warning these Hebrew, many of them professing, many of them not. He says, and is nigh unto cursing by whose end is to be burned. Now notice verse 9. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation Though thus we speak, he says, look, we are persuaded better things of you. Why? Because these people he was writing to, he said, you endured. He takes them back in the previous chapter. He says, remember when you were made a gazing stock, when you were mocked. Now he says, don't give up. Don't give up. You were made a gazing stock and you carry on. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus said to the disciples? He said to the disciples, not to unbelievers, he said, if thy right hand offend thee, 
cut it off. If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out. Why? He says, for it's better that you enter into the kingdom of heaven with one eye, or one arm, rather than to be cast into the eternal fire. He's saying it to the same people that he has said, none shall pluck from my hand. In other words, God's people are kept by the warnings. The children will be kept by the warnings. You must always use what we call the analogy of Scripture. This is why John says this, They went out from us, 1 John 2.19, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. He says, no doubt. Don't question it. But the believer will be kept by the warning. He says, we are persuaded better things of you. Don't just read half a passage and then come to a conclusion, my friend. The Bible has to be studied as a whole. And you see, the Christian will be kept by the word. Will he not? They will persevere by the word. What does 1 Peter 1.5 say? We're kept by the power of God through faith unto the end. But friend, that faith does not live on itself. It lives on the word, doesn't it? It feeds on the word of life. You know, there are many who I've met in my 30-odd years of being a Christian who say, I, I, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. Well, I suppose if you lived on some remote island and there was nobody else around and you had your Bible, you could still be a Christian. But one who is a Christian loves to hear the preaching of the word, who loves to meet with Christians. I, I can't fathom it. Somebody who says they're born again and they don't love the brethren. John says we know that we're passed from death to life because we love the brethren. You know, it's been said, birds of a feather flock together. The Christian will feed upon the word of God with other Christians. Why? Because he has a new nature. There was a time, as I said, and I think I've said it before, when I didn't like Christians. In fact, I think the Christians, or the so-called Christians that I met before, apart from one, were not Christians. I saw people falling on the floor, convulsing like lunatics, singing gibberish and making a mock of the Christian faith, really, by their practices. And I thought, I don't want this. But the Lord, in his time, drew me to himself. You know, there was a time then, and I think I've mentioned it before, there was one young man, I was at school, I'll never forget him, never forget him. He was the genuine article. He was somebody that was born again. I never forgot that. And God made me to never forget that. I used to see him after school immediately go up to his room, 
read his Bible. Every day. I was in boarding school. Every day. That was his life. You see, what God does is he gives a man an appetite for the word. What did the Lord Jesus say? Blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness. My friend, if, they, if there's not that in you, you have to wonder. Has the Lord begun a work in me? Has he made Christ to me the pearl of greatest price? That's the question, isn't it? Assurance really comes by obedience as well. If a man lacks obedience to God, he, he questions his fruit. Is it really fruit after all? Is there really a life? Jesus said, make the tree good and the fruit will be good. Another reason why the person perseveres is they are God's workmanship. Ephesians 2, maybe you wish to turn there. Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he hath loved us, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together. And by the way, think of it, where he says, let me just interject this, where he says, he's raised us up together. Before we were in Adam, weren't we? We were lost in Adam. But Christ is now our federal representative. He is the head of the body, the church. He is, he is the one who is, as it were, our substitute. And we are raised by another. Where is Christ? Sat at the right hand of the Father now. He has raised us together in the heavenly places in Christ, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. In other words, he's done this that you might see something in the future. For by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. My friend, the faith that you have, it's not from you. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now notice, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Paul brings us, and he says, which God hath before ordained, planned, that we should walk in them. This is all determined by God. He says, I'll make that man a new person, and I'll never leave him, nor forsake him. We have the analogy, don't we, there in Romans 9, that God makes, takes out of one lump Adam and makes one vessel unto honor and another to dishonor. Go down to Jeremiah the potter's house where he makes it anew. He, he makes a new man. A person is changed. Another reason why they, they persevere is they are partakers of the divine nature. In 2 Peter 1.1, Peter says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us 
through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. And he says, grace and peace be multiplied through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby we are given unto us exceeding and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. The Holy Spirit has come to reside in us, and we are partakers with Christ, and we are heirs with Christ. And remember what he said, none shall pluck them from my hand, neither the Father's. Another thing is, another way God preserves us and we persevere is that he chastens us. Who does he chasten? Does God chasten everybody? No. Those whom he loves. That's what we're told. Hebrews 12. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. And this is why he says, don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't consider it a small thing when the Lord chastens you. It's a big thing. It's a wonderful thing. Because he loves you. David, thou art the man. God sent Nathan the prophet there. If God didn't love David, he never would have sent the prophet there. The other tendency is, we can become faint, nor become faint when thou art rebuked. We think, oh, I've blown it now. God will cast me away. No, he never will. He never will. He chastens them whom he loves. But he says, but if ye be without chastisement, ye are part, whereof all are partakers, that's all the children, then ye are bastards. You're illegitimate. You're not a child of God. And not sons. The child of God will be kept right on to the end. Right on to the end. They will not fail. Never fail. All that the Father has given me. They are all overcomers. If you read the book of the Revelation... To the seven churches, he that overcometh. He that overcometh. And there's a verse that many trip over. Where it says, the Lord says, if you don't, I'll blot you out of my book. And many stumble at that and think, well, hold on. Can a man lose the salvation? No, as I said earlier, the warning is there. That the child may be kept by it. We're told in Titus, in hope of eternal life, which God promised before the world began. A child of God cannot lose his salvation. But there's the question you need to ask, do I have it? I close with this. You know the well-known parable of the sower, Matthew 13. Some seed was cast by the wayside. The seed was taken. The birds of the air, the fowls of the air took it. Jesus said, that is... The devil, when the seed is sown, and there is a picture of the hard ground, 
people walk on that path. The heart, heart is hard, and the seed never falls. The soil is a picture of the soil, of the heart. It never falls into the soil and never takes root. He said, that's the wayside hero. And then there is the seed sown among thorns. Of course, the seed is cast everywhere. Thorns amongst the stony ground. And then what does he say the thorns are? And the stones, the riches of the world, the cares. These things have the heart and the affection of so many of the hearers. Or the word can be palatable for a little while. But when the scorching sun of tribulation comes down, it never took root in any soil, did it? And it perishes. Person was never saved. Never saved. It was superficial. He said, My Father which gave them me is greater than I, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. In this chapter 6 that we read, many followed him no more. You ever read that? Many of his disciples followed him no more. They said, this is a hard teaching. Who can receive it? He turned to his disciples and said, will you go away also? Peter turned around and said, where shall we go, Lord? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Men, I must ask you this. Have you salvation? If you have salvation, the word of God will be that which is most precious to you. And Christ will be most precious to you. You put the word of God over your own thinking, over your own heart, I've said this before, you know, if the Bible said to me, Jonah swallowed the whale, I'd believe it. I'd believe it. The Word of God tells me I'm a sinner. That I'm lost. Without Christ. But it was Christ that brought me to himself. Because he chose to love me. In his grace and in his mercy. But the word of God also tells me that I must work out my own salvation in fear and in trembling. Why? Paul says, because it's God that works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. You can't work out, my friend, something that is not in you. But if it's in you, it will be worked out. And you'll believe God's word above your feelings, above what others think. And you'll be checking out what I have to say. You will not trust man. You'll trust God. Men cease from men, okay? Trust in God. Believe his word. True to his word, God gave us his son.
and he won't cause any one of his sheep to be lost. They shall come. They shall be mine. We read in Jude 24, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. May God bless his word. Thank him for a salvation that he gives from beginning to end, that God receives the glory and none of us. Amen. After the suffering of the Lord, we are told, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. If the eternal Son of God lost one for whom he died, he would be eternally dissatisfied. But he shall say, as we read in Hebrews, Here am I, and all the children which thou hast given me. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank thee that thy people not only shall be made willing in the day of thy power, but Lord, they shall persevere because of thy spirit, because of thy word, because he did not die in vain, that he shall say one day, here am I and all the children that thou hast given me. Thank thee that he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. We know, Lord, that there are many others to be brought in. This is why we go out this afternoon and preach the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And we pray that the Lamb will have all the glory in our lives. May we never, never take any boast in our salvation. It is all of thee. Paul could say it, O Lord, that he was a debtor to thy mercy. And so are we. Thank thee, O Lord, that we contribute nothing to our salvation, but it is all of thy free, merciful grace in Christ. Bless us now, we pray, please bless the future men's meetings, and we pray, lead and guide in this. For thy name's sake we ask, and for the glory of Christ our Saviour. Amen. Amen.